All right. Um, maybe we should start because we only have an hour. Um, hello, everybody. Um, my name is Nazanin Shahrokni, and I am an assistant professor of gender and globalization at the Department of Gender Studies here at London School of Economics. And it is my uh, I'm thrilled and honored to actually introduce my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Golnar Nikpur. Um, I will introduce her in a minute, but let me do my duties as a chair first. So the running order for the um, for uh, for the webinar today is that the event will be it will last for about an hour. Um, our speaker, Dr. Anikpur, will present for about thirty minutes, uh, leaving the rest of the time for um, Q and A with the audience. Um, if you would like to ask a question, uh, you should type your question in the Q&A um, section at the bottom of your, uh, you can see it at the bottom of your screen and not the chat box. I will compile the questions and um, will then address the questions to the speaker. Uh, please note that this event will be recorded and will also be live streamed on Facebook. Um, if you would like to tweet about the event, which I very much hope you would, um, you can use the hashtag LSE Middle East. So without further ado, let me introduce our um, uh, wonderful speaker and give the floor to her. Dr. Golnar Nikpur is Assistant Professor of History at Dartmouth University. Um, Dr. Nikpur is a scholar of modern Iranian political and intellectual history with a particular interest in history of law, incarceration and rights. She holds a PhD from Columbia University's Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian and African Studies. She teaches on an interdisciplinary set of topics, including modern Middle Eastern and North African history, Iranian history, political theory, Islamic studies, critical prison studies, and women and gender studies. From 2015 to 2017, Dr. Nikpur was an A.W. Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the Center for the Humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Wisconsin and in 2017-2018, she served as a Neuber, I hope I'm saying it correctly, a junior research fellow at the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. Since 2019, Dr. Nikpur has served on the editorial collective of the journal Radical History Review, and she also serves the editorial board of the Radical Histories of the Middle East book series on One World Press. Dr. Nikpur is also co-founder and co-editor of Bitarov, a journal for Iranian arts and writing, where she has written extensively on the intellectual and cultural histories of Iran and its diaspora. She's currently finishing her first book project, a history of Iranian prisons and carcerality in a global context. And that's going to be the basically the um, theme of and theme and topic of her talk today. So without further ado, Golnar, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nazanin. Um, I'm so honored and thrilled to be here with everybody today. Uh, really, I've, I want to start by thanking um, everybody at LSC, at the Middle East Center, uh, and especially uh, my friend and colleague Nozanin Shahrokni and uh, Nadine Almanasfi, uh, and everybody who helped with, uh, the, with the event today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's an honor to get to present my work. So without uh, further ado, I'm going to share my screen. So my talk today is drawn largely from my book manuscript, uh, which is called The Incarcerated Modern, The Prisons and Public Life in Iran. Now, in that book, I argue that Iran's modern prison system 
is a foundational institution of Iranian political modernity, shaping Iranian understandings of citizenship, freedom, and political belonging and unbelonging. My work traces the transformation of Iran from a decentralized empire with few incarcerated persons at the turn of the 20th century into a modern state uh, with a vast prison network with well over a quarter million uh, detainees and prisoners in the Islamic Republic today. And how and why did this massive reordering of the social occur uh, over just a century? Um, and how did Iranians come to understand their increasingly surveilled and punished social worlds? Uh, what, if anything, does Iran's prison history tell us about the coterminous expansion of modern prisons around the globe? Uh, my book analyzes uh, a multilingual and a multi-genre uh, archive with materials that I called from private and, uh, private and public archives in the Islamic Republic, in Europe, across the United States. Um, <clears throat> and then if anyone wants me to talk about some of those archives after, I can. Basically, the idea of the book is to look at the both the institutional history of the prison um, and the historical role of the modern prison in producing new public cultures, new social cultures, new political languages, right? So the idea that this institution isn't just buildings, um, but rather that it actually has sort of social and political effects. Now, I think we all probably know that prisons in contemporary Iran have an unhappy global reputation. <clears throat> Even those onlookers with only cursory knowledge of Iranian politics have heard troubling accounts of arbitrary arrest, torture, extrajudicial violence and executions in today's Islamic Republic. In many popular accounts, um, especially, I mean, in the US and Europe in the Anglosphere, uh, and popular accounts of, the, of prisons in Iran um, assume either tacitly or explicitly that the, the troubling history of this institution begins with the 1979 revolution, uh, and that the reason that we hear so much about prisons in Iran has something to do with the imposition of a pre-modern fundamentalist form of Islam, rather than being sort of constitutive to the workings of a modern carceral state. Uh, my work challenges this reductionist understanding I look at materials across several major political changes in Iranian history. So I, my, the book, it's six chapters. Uh, it's, um, you know, it, aside from the introductory chapter, there's a chapter on the Qajar era. There's chapters on, there's uh, sort of two chapters each on the Pahlavi and Islamic Republic era. So the idea is that you're, um, that the book is trying to look across these major changes to say, in fact, that there are there are two revolutions, there's a coup, there's all these transformative political changes. But if you look at the line of incarceration, how many people are incarcerated beginning in the 1910s and 20s until today, it's basically an exponential line. It's just going up, right? Those changes create some um, moments of fissure, but at the same time, there is the sort of expansion and expansion and expansion of the carceral state. Okay, so just again, to kind of clarify, the book goes over these three different periods, starting at this moment of relative decentralization, where there are not really uh, prisons and prisoners in the way we understand them today. And, and from between the 1920s and today in the, in the you know, the 20s again, but a new 20s. Um, and this 100 years is really the main focus of the book um, and, the, and the major sort of reorganization of the social that takes place. Um, you know, my book ends by looking at 
what I call carcerality beyond the prison in Iran. I'm not going to be talking about that today, really, but I wanted to gesture to it because I think it's important uh, that the Islamic Republic is now it's there are so many detainees and in the Islamic Republic that the major conversation among among, um, you know, sort of high ranking members of the state, including Khamenei, uh, are that the, there needs to be a move towards sort of cutting edge non-prison technologies, things like ankle monitors and biometrics and so forth, these kind of global technologies of surveillance and punishment um, that other scholars have talked uh, have called prison by another name, right? So that there are these moves that, that are in, in keeping with global trends, um, but that are sort of uh, mediated by the contempt, by the needs of subsequent, you know, Iranian uh, governments. So that's where the book kind of ends. In the course of the book, I, I argue that the making of the modern prison system in Iran has led to an elemental and enduring transformation in Iranian life. And that this transformation does not happen in isolation, but is rather part of a global trend uh, in promoting and entrenching carceral solutions. And what I mean by that is promoting and entrenching the idea of surveillance, policing, criminalization, punishment, uh, imprisonment, and the death penalty um, as, the, as the cures, as the salve to a whole host of social problems. Um, anything from debt to drug use to, yeah, uh, sort of the wrong kinds of political activity, right, are, are given carceral solutions. Uh, it's really difficult to overstate the wholesale changes that the modern carceral system has brought to the public world of Iranian life. Um, for most of Iran's long pre-20th century history, forced confinement was a rarity, and long periods of incarceration were virtually non-existent. To put it simply, the types and lengths of punishments handed out in modern and contemporary Iran and the very notion of confinement as punishment, as opposed to confinement, you know, on your way to getting your real punishment, um, was, was basically an unknown in the earlier era. And this is, of course, not to say that forced confinement didn't exist. We know that there were jails and dungeons, and there's a long history of, of uh, prison poetry in the, in the pre-modern era. But these spaces were neither systematized nor capable of holding the long, the large numbers of people that they hold today. It's, just, it's a different imaginary, right? Um, as late as the 1920s, prisoners um, in, in the country numbered only a few hundred. So a few hundred to a quarter million in just, in just a century's time. And the numbers that we have from today are probably undercounts for reasons I can, I can explain um, in the Q&A if anyone is curious, but the official numbers are that there are a quarter million prisoners in 268 official prisons in the Islamic Republic. So I chart the history of, of this change and the constellation of techniques and institutions and of and institutions of modern power foundational to the car carceral state and argue that far from being a site of private suffering, the modern carceral system emerged and was entrenched and remains a generative locus for questions of citizenship rights and political belonging, as I said. Let me give you an example of what, my, what I mean by that. So I argue in the book that the drawing and policing of the lines between bad criminals and good citizens, um, the in that drawing of that line, the carceral techniques of the modern state have broadly shaped notions of citizenship, freedom, and nationalized inclusion and exclusion. Labeling its expansion of prisons social work 
for instance, the mid-20th century Pahlavi government argued that the expanded prisons that it was building were necessary to, quote, train and educate deviant Iranians so that they could live nobly as productive citizens. The names of Iran's carceral institutions were changed in this era to reflect this rehabilitative and uh, sort of transformative impulse. The central prison for men and women, Zendana Markazi, was changed to penitentiary, uh, or place of repentance for men and women, the Nedamatgai Mardan Zanan. While smaller prisons stopped using the word Zendan and started calling themselves places of counsel and Erzgah. And of course, the word Zendan is itself was itself a relatively new innovation in the Iranian context. Um, that I can I can also talk about the etymology of the of the word. And, and so at this point, there's there's some changes to, to the way that the public is imagining, or at least the government is imagining what prisons will do. This process has been marked by a turn towards what I, borrowing from the recent tradition of critical prison studies, call the carceral imagination, or a way of seeing the world in which the incarceration of large numbers of people is normalized and viewed as inherent to the project of progress and modernity. I analyze the methods by which mass carceralization came to be seen as obvious and necessary responses to a host of social issues and a step towards placing Iran among the progressive and civilized nations of the world. And this is particularly the case in the Pahlavi era. Even as Iran has undergone political upheavals at the highest level, as I was saying, the carceral institutions and imaginaries inaugurated at the turn of the century have not only remained in, in place, but vastly expanded. So let me just, I'm gonna mostly be talking in this, in, today, in the rest of the talk about the late Qajar and especially the Pahlavi eras and really the foundation and the sort of entrenchment of the carceral state. The reason that I'm focusing on that is one, in the interest of time and two, um, because I think it's important to think about the way in which this system becomes entrenched, right? One of the things that I talk about in the book is, okay, the 1920s, we're only talking about a couple hundred of, of, of detainees. By 1979, there are tens of thousands of, of detainees. And, and there is not really a move, even with how important uh, freeing uh, political detainees, political dissidents from prisons were to the revolutionaries who overthrew the Pahlavi government, there's not really a move towards decarceralizing the country, right? Like imagining a country without carcerality, even though there are innumerable quotes from Khomeini himself saying that in a system of true Islamic justice, nobody would need to be imprisoned for even a day. This is a quote that he that he himself gives several times, right? So, and, and that this is considered, this is normalized totally, the idea that prisons are totally a normal part of modern existence, um, something by which you, something you have to have, right, in order to deal with criminal element. And, and, I, and so what I'm, I'm really focused on today is how in just a few generations does this idea, the idea of the carceral state as being an absolute necessity to ordering the world around you, um, to the point that even this major upheaval that happens, there is um, not necessarily a move. I mean, there are, of course, the freeing of, of political dissidents, but there is not necessarily a move towards rethinking how a system of justice might work, right? Okay, so that's why I, I focus largely on the on this era. So I'll, I'm going to focus on this earlier part of the story, and then and then we'll kind of move forward. Now, in the summer of 19, I'm sorry, in the summer of 1895, uh, an Iranian man identified as Sadduk uh, attacked his British employer, a uh, Mr. Tanfield, in his bed with a sword. According to Tanfield, the enmity between Sadduk and uh, 
and Tanfield began when Tanfield fired Sajuk, whom he had employed, for allegedly stealing a watch. Now, Tanfield was employed by a private British company called Lynch and Company, which had been granted a concession by the Shah in 1888 to run a line of steamers along the Karun River. This concession was one among several unpopular deals that the Qajars granted to British businessmen in the time. And the lopsided terms of these colonial deals famously elicited mass mobilizations by broad cross sections of Iranians at the dawn of the 20th century. These responses, the tobacco revolt of 1890 and the constitutional movement of 1905 to 1911 have correctly been understood as the first modern protest movements in Iranian history. But beyond these mass movements, the, and beyond the mass movements that they helped spark, the presence of British concessionaires and colonial officers elicited intimate and quotidian violence as well, much like the Tanfield incident. Now Tanfield awoke to find the sword wielding Saduk perched on top of him, but managed to fend off the death blow to his head. He escaped with his life, although he lost his hand. When Tanfield was carried to the river to be taken away from medical care, Crowds of Iranians swarmed the area and hooted and hollered and celebrated the company man's injuries. Now, in a subsequent report to his superiors, um, J.F. White, assistant political agent for Her Britannic Majesty's Consul, was apoplectic. Decrying what he perceived as the lawlessness of Qajar Persia, White exasperatedly claimed that the Qajar government seemed not to grasp that its inaction regarding criminals and criminality was a problem. Because of the inactivity of local authorities, White argued, quote, there has been another attack upon an Englishman. He has been dreadfully wounded and disfigured. I have tried in vain to get the would-be murderer punished, but nothing whatever has been done. Where the mob hooted and stoned Mr. Tanfield, the local authorities have taken no notice of this brutal demonstration. And the colonial archive is just full of incidents like this and similarly full of incidents of British colonial officers saying, hey, there's no law enforcement here. It's totally lawless. So I, I, I argue that there's this kind of paradox that emerges where they both talk about the incredible, uh, they say that this is a sort of classic, the Qajars are classic oriental despots, but also that there's lawlessness. It's kind of anarchic and, and authoritarian at the same time in their view. In response to incidents like this, colonial officers routinely called for more surveillance and armed law enforcement from the Qajar government, lest further European reinforcements be brought in to do the job. Yeah, a seeming paradox emerges between in European accounts that painted the Qajar officials as ruthless, despotic, absolutist, uh, and yet needing of more rather than less punishment. Um, it's in this precise era that Iranian modernists, reformists, um, nationalists, uh, intellectuals become invested in questions of law and legality. Uh, policing is part of that for them. This investment in the question of the law, which uh, scholar Hadi Enayat has called the quote, legal fetishism of Qajar intellectuals would be increasingly carceral, right? So there's a lot of scholarship on how law and the rule of law was important, but the only, the mechanism by which that would have to happen would, ha would have to be more policing and carcerality. You know, intellectuals are starting to talk about this as a necessity for the Iran to leap forward civilizationally and, and rejoin the sort of comity of states that it, it properly belongs to, i.e. The European, the European states. Now, reformist pressures pushed the Qajar government towards making some limited European-style 
reforms of law enforcement, particularly in Tehran. Um, the policing reform in this era resulted in part from anxieties induced by European territorial and economic encroachment. In 1878, uh, Nasruddin Shah decided to create the nation's first European style police force, hiring the Italian born Austrian Conte de Monteforte as an advisor. De Monteforte helped uh, reorganize Tehran's police force, uh, the Nazmiye, uh, and in this era that, that na the Nazmiye was formed. It remained relatively small in number, about 250 to 400 members over the next two decades. But still, there was important uh, moves made towards, towards the reorganization of policing in this time. Seeking the further expansion of the capital city's law enforcement capacities after the constitutional era, the Qajar government brought in several Swedish officers in 1912 under the direction of Reserve Lieutenant Gunnar Westall. And this is a really important moment in the history of Iran's prisons because the Swedes worked not only to exponentially expand the police force and introduce some of the basics of what were then uh, current European evidentiary norms like fingerprinting and interrogation tactics, but they also, uh, oversaw the building of a nascent modern carceral network in central Tehran's Tubkhana Square, a location that had until recently at that time been used for public executions and whippings. Now the prisons established in this era under Swedish direction, uh, which were small by later standards, uh, included the notorious if generically named prison number one and prison number two, whose cells were unfavorably compared to one early detainee to coffins <clears throat> there, these prisons are, you know, for those who might be familiar with some of the political writings of this time, the prisons number one and number two were, were, are perhaps most famous for holding some members of the early Iranian Communist Party, people like Ardashir Avanesian. And so we have some material from those prisons from them, but they also held um, common law uh, detainees. Now, the facilities that were built in Tubkhana Square were part of a small carceral network uh, across the street from the also new Etelaat newspaper building. Um, and they included a small interrogation center, a temporary holding facility, the central police jail, and the first dedicated women's jailing facility in the history of Iran. And the women's facility would remain the main women's prison well into the Pahlavi era until the Qasr prison, women's prison was sort of operational. Uh, but in this era, women also started to be held in uh, policing in, in sections of police jails in the other big cities. So the, the police jail in Esfahan and Shiraz and so on had dedicated women's sections. Swedish officers also initiated changes to the culture found inside of Qajar Purchase jails, ending the practice of putting chains around the necks and blocks around the legs of detainees, which would have looked like this. Uh, beginning in the 1910s, prisoners no longer looked like this and were newly made to wear standard issue uniforms modeled on those found in European prisons. This would be, uh, these would remain in use uh, through the Pahlavi period. So, oops, this is what it would look like just a couple of decades later. So you, you see uh, the image of male prisoners in the Reza Shah era. So I, this picture is from the 1930s. Whereas this picture, the one before, is from, oops, the 1900s into the early 1910s. <clears throat> now, in 1925, upon the crowning of Reza Khan as the first Pahlavi king, 
Members of the Iranian police force, including Mirza Abdullah Bahrami and Lieutenant Colonel Abdullah Khan Saif, who was then the chief of police in Qazvin, traveled to the International Penal and Penitentiary Conference in London. The 1925 event was the ninth such conference held by the International Prison Commission, an organization that was first convened in London in 1872. The commission was formed with the mandate to collect international prison statistics and to recommend reforms on prison management. 1925 was the first time an Iranian delegation joined the conference, although uh, there had been some communication between Iranian delegations and members of the commission in years prior. For Sir Evelyn Rugglesbrees, British prison administration administrator and pr president of the IPC, the work of the commission was no less than the undertaking uh, than an undertaking in the service of civilization and humanity. Rugglesbrees boasted that the commission was, quote, a confederation of the most civilized states of the world, working, quote, quietly and unostentatiously to introduce greater humanity to punishment systems around the world. He claimed that the commission was torchbearers for, quote, a world desire for a rational and equitable system of punishment. For Rugglesbrees, this world desire was itself, quote, due to the progressive widening of the circle of humanity. Noting recent successes in prison reforms in Siam and Japan, Rugglesbrees credited the commission for bringing together statesmen from around the world to promote the humane continental system of prison administration. Members of different nations breathing in the same civilizing atmosphere, and this is a quote from Rugglesbrees, came to regard each other as compatriots sociaux in the work of humanity, end quote. This led to penal reform that would reduce criminal behavior the world over. The 19, for the IPC, the 1925 conference would be an important step towards bringing new participants, Pahlavi Iran in included, into that civilizing atmosphere. And the insights gleaned from this conference, as well as the civilizational logics buttressing these insights, would influence the building of new Iranian prisons for years to come. Two years later, Reza Shah appointed Minister of Justice Ali Akbar Davar to lead the judiciary. And this is a, a bit more well-known of a story for, for those who are familiar with this era of Iranian history. Two days after his appointment, Davar dissolved the existing judiciary and undertook a complete overhaul of what was then a piecemeal uh, organic civil and criminal code. This wholesale centralization of Iran's legal system happened at the same time as the establishment of an expansive new modern prison system. Iran planned to build tens of new prisons in the Reza Shah era. Five large prisons of 2,700 square meters for 100 inmates, 50 medium-sized prisons for 50 inmates, 30 institutes, institutions for 30, deta uh, 30 small institutions of 1,000 square meters meant to hold 30 detainees and several very small prisons as well. Now, some of these planned uh, institutions were not built at the time. Some were built later, some were never built. But this is the moment where that system is sort of first imagined, blueprints are laid and they're, and they're built. The most famous of these prisons was Gast. <clears throat> and this is an image of Gast prison in the 1930s, just after it was built. It opened in 1929 with seven cell blocks, 192 rooms, and the capacity to hold about a thousand detainees. Pahlavi Iran intended Qasr to be the crown jewel of its new penal system, proof to the world that it was a civilized modern state. <clears throat> the, the Pahlavi elite was proud of the new prison. Later statesman Ahmad Human 
would later boast that that with Gast, Iran had finally built a prison that would hold prison prisoners, quote, without any sort of class distinctions uh, and would help them towards a path towards a better life. Yet despite these high hopes, Gast uh, immediately became an object of criticism as the prison seemed almost immediately to reveal the limits of Pahlavi legal reform rather than its successes. Now, one such critique uh, that I'll just briefly mention in the talk today was a 1946 expose of life in the prison called Come With Me to Prison by a journalist uh, by the name of Hedayatollah Hakim Elahi. He's an Oxford-educated journalist, Islamic humanist, and critic of the Pahlavi state. Hakim Elahi's book, um, dedicated to the prisoners, quote, whose only crime has been poverty and a lack of power, went through three printings of a thousand copies each, and gestures to a growing anxiety among literate Iranians of his day that Tehran in particular uh, was not only the, the capital of the, the new government, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the capital of the, of, the, of the Pahlavi government, but with its prisons, asylums, brothels, red light districts, was also the capital of the nation's sin and vice. Echoing a growing public anxiety surrounding the apparent rise in criminality in mid-century Iran, and particularly of female and child criminality, uh, female detainees are of particular concern for Hakim Elahi. He explains that many in the women's prison are there with young children in tow, while others have kids at home. So here's an image from his book of a sad female detainee and her equally sad child. Um, there's other similar uh, ideas percolating at the time. There's the first monograph length book comes out about 10, no, a little bit later. Um, about female criminality. And there's also a documentary by uh, famed documentarian Kamran Shirdel, who similarly paints a scandalous picture of Tehran's women prison in his 1965 film called Women's Prison, which similarly focuses on the fact that mothers are raising their children behind bars. <clears throat> in their emphasis on broken families, critiques such as these challenged late Pahlavi institutions using a long-standing discourse of Iranian nationalism, patriotic motherhood. Instead of raising the next generation of healthy citizens, these critiques indicate Iranian women are raising the next generation of criminals and recidivists. Now, according to these, according to Hakim Allahi, the conditions at, Bash, at, at the juvenile prison are equally grim. Raised by criminals, these sons of modern Iran enter prison as wayward children, but are released as hardened criminals. For its part, official discourses discussed child criminality as a failing of negligent parents. Hakim Allahi ironically claims that the women's prison and the juvenile prison and the past are all giant schools in which one must learn a quote, strange science, the science of criminality. A master lockbreaker teaches new young prisoners how to break locks with silk. Another teaches them how to slit throats without making a sound. He mobilizes the sensational detail towards reformist aims, however, um, arguing that the government should do, if they're gonna arrest a bunch of people, they should do something productive with them, turn them into useful citizens. And this would precisely be the project that the government would take up in these and later years. Now, <clears throat> the question what, of what to do with these prisoners uh, would be taken up by academics in uh, the budding fields of modern sociology and criminology, influenced by trends in those fields in the US and Europe. 
Now, from its inception, the Iranian Academy was linked in complex ways to the project of Pahlavi state modernity. As Sirus Shayar has argued, the language of modern sciences was first adopted by members of the Pahlavi elite as uh, part of a, quote, modernist urge to hasten Iran's modernization and improve its administration. Now, I argue that we have to view this kind of these new discourses on prison administration and criminal in much the same light. In the 1950s, there's a budding interest in El Mezendon or prison sciences in Iran's universities. I'll just mention a couple of illustrative texts very quickly. Um, one was a 1950s doctoral thesis by a scholar named Abol Hassan Behpur from Tehran University's law school entitled Zendono Zendonian or Prisons and Prisoners. Now, from what I found, this is the first monograph length work in Iran exclusively on prisons. It's totally, totally emblematic of the type of thinking that you find in these criminological texts. Beckward proposes a telos in which the history of punishment moves as a progressive march from the inefficient and inhumane towards the useful and just. He argues that in a primordial pre-legal era, he indicates that the Qajars are this primordial era, right? Quote, no one paid attention to the reform of the criminal, an issue which is of major importance in progressive nations today, end quote. He writes, in prisons of old, so much did they torture prisoners that they would be forced to confess whether or not they had committed any crime. But today in Iran, prison punishments are applied with regard to the law. Despite this triumphant tone, Pahlavi prisons emerged in his texts and other criminological texts that start to appear as sites of anxiety, especially when it came to detainee health or psychology. Now, from its inception, Iranian criminology leaned heavily on the language of the medical sciences and eventually on the language of psychology. Taj Zaman Danesh, who was among late Pahlavi Iran's foremost criminologists, um, prison reform advocates, and also instructors at the Iranian Police Academy, argues in her one of her monographs, which is also, uh, I believe, is called El Mezendon, uh, Prison Sciences which was used as a textbook in the police academy, she argues, quote, the criminal is like a patient and just as a doctor orders tests on the patient in order to diagnose their disease, the judge must collect information on the personality of each offender in order to discover the reasons for their crime. Now, this wasn't the only link between police training in this era and the field of criminology. So again, the police academy is using this text, but the national police department also built a small museum of criminology in this era that it took police academy cadets to, to learn about fingerprinting techniques and policing, a science, quote, scientific police methods. But one thing I'd like to emphasize here is that this humanist language, this reformist language meant, amounted to significantly more intensive surveillance for all Iranians, affording a remarkably new ability to collect and use data from millions of citizens. By the mid 1960s, the National Police Bureau held a repository, quote, with over 5 million photographs and fingerprints classified according to the Henry system on file. That's a remarkable transformation, right? 5 million fingerprints and photos. Yet in Donish's work and in the work of criminologists of this era, the modern surveillance state is cast as a medical doctor, as a healer, as a reformer of prisoner pathology. So we see in this moment, the, the way in which social ills, problems of various forms, poverty in particular, is, is increasingly subjected to carceral logic. Modern prisons and policing is recast as therapeutic institutions that could heal or even cure these social ailments. 
Now the state would take up this project. <clears throat> In 1954, the Orion cabinet approved funding for the Institute for the Cooperation and Industry of Prisoners, a state-run organization concerned with prisoner labor. With backing from another state-run institution, the Organization for the Protection of Prisoners, um, they instituted a prison labor program that was advertised as an important victory for Pahlavi state humanism. And this was starting to take place at roughly the same time and in, into the same era as the white revolution and using a lot of the same language, right, of transforming, uh, of transforming Iran into a place where that is sort of a long civil, it's a great leap forward civilizationally, right? So the Institute would in the 50s and 60s establish new factories in both the men and women's prison in Gas with workstations for sewing, metalworks, automobile repair, furniture building, and many, many other things. By 1965, there were at least 30 skilled technicians in the Ghash prison factory who taught classes and worked in a management capacity. And there were something about uh, close to a thousand uh, detainees um, who were in prison work programs in Iran. The Institute credited its founding to the progressive nature of Mohammad Reza Shah, whom they claimed had reformed Iranian prisons along quote, civilized and humane principles. A 1965 speech given by National Chief of Police, uh, General Mohsen Mobassar, whose police force um, had uh, oversaw the prison system, reveals to just what an extent criminological discourses had seeped into official conversations on the Iranian prison. This is a quote of the, of the chief of police. He says, quote, the dialectical method teaches us that every phenomenon must be studied in a state of flux, transformation, and evolution. The goal of punishment in earlier society was only retribution, he continues. As a result, punishments were inhumane. Not only wasn't any positive result achieved, but the vengeful atmosphere also led to the committing of worse and more horrific crimes. Yet the chief of police continues that these new prisons and new prison programs will uh, uh, eradicate, and this is his own language, they would either eradicate or at least radically reduce crime in Iran. Prisons had to be built and filled with detainees, this logic claimed, for the prisons to, in some unknown future date, not to need to exist at all. So they need to exist in order not to exist. <clears throat> It wasn't only Mubassar members of law enforcement who were promoting this. No less a personage than Queen Farah remarked in 1968 that most prisoners are capable of reform and cultivation, tarbiyat, and are regretful of their criminal actions, end quote. She continued, if prisoners see nothing but violence inside of prison and their families outside are in distress and have no refuge, then these prisoners will become cynical towards society. Prison bears a responsibility for the recuperation of these souls. So this is in 1968, right? Um, so we also can think about what else is happening in the prisons at this time. Like it's, they're also becoming quite famous for actually not doing this, for being quite violent spaces of quite extraordinary violence, right? So what are the Pahlavi, what is the Pahlavi government saying needs to happen to prisoners in order to transform them from these sort of social deviants into uh, good citizens? And I promise I'm almost done now. The resounding answer for these institutions is labor. Uh, so this is an image of Fast Prison Factory in 1946. And this is uh, an image from the booklet that was produced by the, the organization of the Institute for the Cooperation and Industry of Prisons, uh, Prisoners in 1965. And you see in the image that the on the left, the prisoner goes in 
um, you know, sort of slouched over and sad. And then he works, you see the prison factories in the back and he comes out and he's strong and good and the light of freedom and enlightenment is, is following, he's following it, right? So you, you really even see the telos in this one image really clearly. Now in the book project, I move forward and look at ways that the Pahlavi uh, prison policies and especially the torture of incarcerated dissidents becomes a really big part of uh, public conversations and, and really a, an, an enormous part of the revolutionary surge that happens in 1979. So I, in what I talk about the public life of the prisons, one part of that is political uh, detainees, uh, incarcerated detainees, and, and the, the degree to which that becomes a big part of the revolutionary conversation. <clears throat> but I would like to end my talk by, by briefly just just uh, painting a picture of the post-1979 expansion of the carceral state in Iran to try to think about what, how we can link the pre and the post-revolutionary moment. Now there's a lot I'm kind of glossing here so I can answer in, in questions um, in, the, in the Q and A. But I, if, if this is a moment where the carceral state is really founded and the logic of solving social problems through incarceration is, is promoted, I argue that this actually just sort of continues in the post-revolutionary era, albeit with really different, uh, with some different normative um, uh, inputs and implications. So, <clears throat> you know, Iranians uh, who were in the post-1979 expansion of Iran is, is, is in some sense uh, uh, deeply ironic tragedy, because Iranians who were once united enough in their opposition to Iranian prisons and torture to champion the freeing of prisons, prisoners as part of their revolutionary efforts have nonetheless ex experienced the consolidation of a government that has continued, intensified, and vastly expanded the carceral practices and institutions that so publicly defined the fallen monarchy. The raw numbers of this historical expansion paint a stark picture. According to official tallies, and again, these official tallies are likely undercounts, the total number of prisoners in the Islamic Republic in 1980 stood at 8,557 in a population of approximately 37 million. But by 2016, that number had ballooned to more than 26 times to 223,000. Another recent tally puts that the total of incarcerated persons just before the revolution at 16,000 compared to the, 19, the 2020's total of 240,000. Now, despite the importance of political prisoners to the story of prisons that we've all heard in Iran, both in the Pahlavi era and in the Islamic Republic era, the most sizable by far um, population of incarcerated persons were those detained on drug-related charges. Just for instance, in 1982, the total of persons officially arrested on drug-related charges was around 19,000, and just six years later, it was almost 100,000. That expansion has only continued apace. The expansive carceral system today entrenched in Iran has, I argue, been over a century in the making. If the Qajar era gave rise to carceral thinking in Iran and the Pahlavi period in this era in which the carceral state and were the in the, in the era is in which the carceral state and imaginary were institutionalized, the Islamic Republic era represents a further doubling down on the logics and institutions of modern surveillance, policing, and punishment, escalated to heretofore unprecedented levels in Iranian history. Nor, in short, the Islamic Republic remains buttressed by a modern prison system it inherited from its monarchic predecessor and which it has expanded and further developed at every turn. 
nor in this century is this century of carceral expansion and the explosion in the number of incarcerated persons in the second half of the 20th century an exclusively Iranian phenomenon. Indeed, expansive carceral growth in this era has been a global, if uneven, phenomenon paced by far by the United States. So that, that's the context in which the book is kind of trying to situate the making of the carceral state in Iran. And I can talk a little bit about the changes in the way that prisons and prisoners and rehabilitation is talked about in the post-revolutionary era, but I'll end by just noting that the, the law about prison, the there's a law that's passed in 1975 that sort of outlines what the point of prison prisoner rehabilitation is and what they should do, vocational training, labor, so on and so forth. That law remains on the books exactly as it was in the pre-revolutionary era today. The only thing that's added as part of the sort of educational capacity of the state is, is Quranic and Islamic education. There's an Islamic education component as well as a vocational training component to, to be a salve for the soul as well as the body, right? So trying to think about the, the, the transformations that are happening in this time, I think that that's extremely, extremely important and telling that there is that there is a taking on of this rehabilitative model, but to a different normative end, right? So I'll, I'll end there. Uh, I went a little over time. I'm sorry. Um, I like showing the slides. That's that's what always happens to me. So hopefully there's uh, some questions and I'm happy to answer. Sure. Thank you very much, um, Golnar, for this amazing um, lecture. And I'm sorry our time is limited. So I know it's difficult to uh, condense 200 years of history in um, <laughs> In, in one hour or 40 minutes. We actually have a couple of uh, very good questions here. I will start with the first one, um, which basically kind of builds on where you are ending. Um, and it was posed by um, uh, Professor Madawiya Rashid. So the question I guess is, if I could find it, is, um, okay. Does the Islamic Republic justify the pervasive prison system by, referring to Islamic theology. And just building on your talk, you did mention that at the beginning of the revolution, there was this discourse of a truly Islamic society would not even need prisons. So I guess you can kind of build on that and then um, tell us a little bit more about how the prison system is justified in post-revolutionary Iran. And has there been, uh, can we notice shifts or patterns in how this discourse has evolved or shifted even? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you want to get the second question as well, or shall we? There's another and then if yeah. I can because just yeah. for the interest of time, for the sake I, of time, because the, the second question is actually also helps you kind of elaborate on the framing of your talk um, by um, Bruce Stanley. Um, your argument transcends a statist framework demonstrating multiple multi-scalar global, local, and regional influences. So why shape this as a carceral, carceral state instead of a carceral world with strong mm -hmm. links to Chinese tech, Interpol data, Kuwait drug mm -hmm. enforcement, um, global police experts, et cetera, et cetera. So. Oh. That's a fantastic question. <laughs> and the honest answer, I'll, let me just take a pen so I make sure I don't miss anything. I will answer the second question by, and kind of go into the first question through it. I, you know, I, I frame the book as a carceral state rather than a carceral world for two reasons. One is entirely practical and not a very good or satisfying answer, which is that the book is already too long and too unwieldy. And I'm not, in some sense, I'm not able to make the comparative leaps you know, the nitty gritty comparative leaps. I, I gesture towards the, the comparative frame. I show that the, the, those links exist, but I'm not writing a book about the carceral world. This is about 
prisons in Iran. But the second reason actually is, I think, embedded in the, the archive itself. In other words, there is a good reason. And that reason is that the carceral world is run by nation states. Um, the na nation states are, are still the sort of unit in which a lot of these decisions and, and the practical, um, practical sort of application of, of these uh, processes is, is happening. That is not to say that there are not profound transnational links between, between these states. In the Pahlavi era, for instance, um, the US police academy sends these training uh, sort of high ranking military officials to train Iranian police and gendarmerie. Uh, in, in methods of, of riot control and in particularly in drug enforcement, because they're already, the US is already using in those private pr uh, policing discourses, a language of a war on drugs. And they're frustrated because not just Iran, but a lot of states in the Middle East are like not initially that invested in, in cracking down on, on drug use in quite the same way. By the 1960s, they are, but earlier on, they're not. And, and you see that this is like, you're not gonna get this $3 million unless you do these A, B, C, and D to police um, your borders and drug use within your borders because that spills out into the world, right? So there's that. And then in the contemporary moment, I think your, your reference to Chinese tech is really important because in the last, let's see, it's 2022. In the last six to eight years, there has been an enormous investment on the part of uh, Iranian government towards um, new forms of carceral tech. In a speech in 2013, Khamenei told the police and judiciary that they have to start investing in these cutting edge uh, policing techniques. So that's like biometrics, um, border biometrics, ankle monitors um, for, for detainees. Um, um, and a lot of that is is working. It's really hard to trace the relationship that it has to to sort of private tech in from China and the Gulf and in the sort of North American context. That's actually very difficult to trace. But there are these clear hints that that's where where the where the tech is coming from, right? So these global links are extraordinarily important, and they point to the geopolitical sort of links that are in the atmosphere at the time. And at the same time, they're, they're mediated again by the, you know, the Iranian um, detainee who is held in an ankle monitor that he or she has to pay for uh, to the government is not thinking about Chinese tech. They're just like, oh, this is deeply annoying. I have to, or extremely limiting or whatever. And I have to pay my parole officer. I have to do this, I have to do that. So, so again, the mediation is through this carceral state. The state apparatus is necessary in this broader carceral world. Um, so I try to make the connections clear without losing sight of the fact that in terms of the actual experience of ordinary people being policed and incarcerated, they're experiencing their oppression. Um, like the person who is immediately above them, beating them, arresting them, imprisoning them, forcing them to pay a fine, whatever, um, that's an Iranian officer, right? That's not a like the member of the Chinese tech firm or the American military person in 1965, that's the Iranian officer. So I think that's extremely important. Now to the question, the earlier question about the Islamic Republic and its, its, its transformations, um, you know, I didn't really go into it in great detail today. I sort of gestured towards it very quickly at the end, but I, 
the Islamic Republic, you know, there's all these quotes from Khomeini in the just before the revolutionary times about their uh, just before the time of the revolution, talking about how simple and straightforward an Islamic system of governance would be, that it would just be so easy, that the bureaucracy would simply wither away. It's actually very, <laughs> it's very similar to the the like um, kind of wishful thinking, the the magical thinking of extremely doctrinaire vulgar Marxism that says that simply the state will wither away, like it just won't it need to exist once this thing, and there's no real mechanism that's described for how that will happen. Well, what happens in reality is that there's no, <laughs> the state becomes much, much bigger. The bureaucracy becomes enormous. The prisons, I, I make it very clear in the book that this is just a small part of a large bureaucratic state that explodes in this time. The state in the Islamic Republic period, the number of people who work for it, the number of institutions that it has, the sprawling state and semi-state institutions are much bigger than, than what existed in the pre-revolutionary era. And the effort to make the government, the law, the legal system run by Sharia is extremely fitful at best. Um, and there's all sorts of justifications. There's expedience, there's the law, you know, there's the idea that whatever is expedient for the state is good, that there's whatever that the Islamic judge says should be the punishment, that's fine, that can be prisons, that's how, there's all of these workarounds, but there's no serious effort made. I mean, there, there's all of a sudden they, there are these people who have to run a state, right? And they just take over the institutions of the state and try to make it work. Um, yes, there is absolutely, uh, reference to Islam as a, as the reason for these institutions. I make a meaningful distinction between the dif between the first decade after the revolution, where there is a real, a real zeal uh, to say that we're going to cleanse our society of non-Islamic and non-revolutionary, um, uh, you know, problems. And that includes everything from, you know, political opponents, and that's probably the most famous, but also, you know, the, that's the language that's used for the, for drug users. So the idea that the the Islamic State, in it, within a few years, there will be no more drug use, right? That drug use is a function of decadence and westernization and, and uh, turn away from Islam and the turn towards Islam and the punishments that are meted out, that these punishments are capable of transforming society. So the imaginary, and this is something that I say, Khomeini is constantly himself using both Islamic and carceral, essentially carceral logics to make claims. He says that in order for there to be a just and Islamic state, these sort of, we need to punish according to what he says are global legal standards. Anyone would say drug use is illegal. Anyone would say that what the Shah did, torturing dissidents is illegal. And we can't, and so it's not merely Islam, but rather a sort of marriage in, in the, art, the articulation of how he, how he and other members of the revolutionary elite talk about their, what they're doing, this sort of necessity to really bring this kind of Islamic justice and legality to, to bear on the state. By the time, you know, in the aftermath of the Iran-Iraq war and after Khomeini dies into the 90s and especially into the 2000s, um, more and more the, the language shifts back to that therapeutic model, but it's, it's Islamicized, right? That the therapeutic language of the state also is, is shifted into a kind of more for lack of a better way of thinking about it, a kind of reformist idea about what Islam does. It's not that Islam is gonna come scorched earth the way that is imagined in this earlier moment, but rather that it's capable of over time changing people's souls. So if you bring somebody in for five years, their, their sentence is five years, and you assign them a certain amount of Islamic learning that can transform them into a new kind of, a new kind of citizen. So, so the discourse changes how it 
you know, Islam is not one set thing in these different moments and different uh, folks are speaking differently. And now in this turn towards non-prison carcerality, the idea of ankle monitors, biometrics and different forms of surveillance, that's also justified um, through a sort of Islamic language, but it's also total realpolitik. They're like, we simply cannot afford to have these people in hundreds of thousands of people in prison. It's expensive, it's difficult, it's not, it's not happening anymore. So yeah, there's a combination. Thank you very much. Um, we're officially um, over time. It's five. We're officially done with the talk, but we have um, a few more questions. I don't know if you have time, uh, Golnar, to, I mean, some of them are, all of them are actually really good questions. Really good questions Maybe yes. I can, um, shall I, do you have five more minutes or? Uh, sure. So, um, uh, maybe what we can do, we can also compile the questions. I will read the first question and then for the sake of time, I will compile all the other questions and then I'll send them your way and then maybe the participants can kindly follow up with you afterwards. Um, I guess this just shows how um, intriguing your talk and fascinating your presentation was. So um, uh, the question from Anthony Gorman, uh, they basically want to hear a reference to Iranian attendance at the Prison Congress in London in 1925. Iran also attended the early international criminology congresses, late 1930s, early 50s. What do you see as the dynamics operating between the Iranian state and the international prison community at this time? I think that requires another uh, hour of talk. Um, yeah. I leave it at that because there are other questions that are equally interesting, but um, I know your time is limited. So if you can just address this one, that would be great. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dr. Gorman, thank you for your question. I'm familiar with your work on prisons and, and you know, I've, I've learned a lot from it. So I, I appreciate the, the comment and I appreciate you making the time to come to this talk. It's, a, it's an honor to have you. Um, yeah, I, I have, you know, the, the much longer version of the talk I gave would have included some of that material from the international criminology congresses. And, and essentially I'll answer it in short, which is to say that it, the same folks that I'm talking about, um, they only connect more and more to those criminology conferences. And there's shifts in the ways that criminology is being thought of. Like in the 1925 conference, really the center of the criminological world in some ways is still Europe. And by the 1950s, it the, the model that is being used is really from the US, the social scientific models from the US. So there are some important, important shifts there. And then into the 1960s, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that there are actually then, they take those models, these ideas and make them material. So there's a prison that's built um, in Marion, Illinois in the 1960s, USP, which is now called um, U United States Penitentiary, USP Marion. Um, it still exists. It's the smallest federal supermax prison, but at the time it was the state of the art prison. Its model, its blueprint through these connections, these criminological connections is exported to several several countries around the world, one of which is Pahlavi Iran. And it's built and it's first brings in prisoners basically at the same time with just a couple of years after USP Marion. So the other countries that that I know of that it, that it, um, that this model is used in is New Zealand, Australia, um, Israel, and I discovered that it's used in Pahlavi, Iran, and those prisons still are operational um, in Tehran and Karaj, and, and I believe one in Shiraz as well that are based on that model. And the USP Marion, what made it cutting edge at the time was that it had these prison, these detainee therapy sessions. It had solitary confinement on the one hand and prisoner uh, therapy sessions on the other hand, so that, you know, prisoners would be talking to sort of 
uh, uh, criminologists, sociologists, and therapists as part of their as part of their experience. And this is really brought out in that 1950s and 60s moment. That's the sort of next step is actually bringing these models uh, into into the uh, space of 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 actual prison life in Iran. Well, thank you very much, uh, Golnar Akram, Susan, who's also from University of Wisconsin-Madison, so they say hi to you. And Nadawi, I'm sorry, we are not going to get to your questions now, but I will send your questions to Golnar and hopefully you can follow up afterwards. Um, thank you very much again, Dr. Nikpur, and thank, thank you so much. Center for the talk. Yeah, thank you so much for everything and, and thank you for everybody for coming and for your wonderful questions.